Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing on in our series on the life of Jacob with our scholar-in-residence, James Jordan. Here, he'll be in Genesis chapter 32, still with Jacob being at Peniel, but here he'll be specifically looking at the issue of naming. He'll look at God's name, Jacob's name, and his change to Israel, as well as the name of the location in this passage. We wanted to remind you again that you can become a Theopolis partner by donating $50 a month or $500 a year. What do you get as a partner? Well, you'll get a weekly email from Peter Lightheart that gives you an inside look at his work, his writings, as well as life at Theopolis. This may include chapters of books before they're released and different theological projects that we're working on. You'll also get free access to the audio of our courses when they become available and occasional Theopolis partner webinars that we'll do throughout the year. So if you'd like to sign up, we have a link down there in the show notes for you. And with that, we want to thank you for listening. We hope that you are encouraged and sharpened by this episode. And here is James Jordan looking at the naming issues in the life of Jacob. We will read Genesis 32, 24 to the end of the chapter and review it and we'll finish up at least the exposition of this section. We'll start in verse 22. And Jacob arose during that night and took his two wives and his two maids and his eleven children and crossed the Jabbok crossing. And he took them and brought them across the river and he brought across what belonged to him and Yaakov was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the coming up of dawn. And he saw that he could not prevail against him and he touched the socket of his thigh. And the socket of Jacob's thigh had been dislocated as he wrestled with him or was dislocated. And he said, Let me go, for the dawn has come up. And he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Yaakov. Then he said, Not as Yaakov shall your name be henceforth uttered, but as Yisrael. For you have fought with God and men and have prevailed. And Yaakov asked and said, Pray tell me your name. But he said, Now why do you ask after my name? And he gave him blessing there. And Yaakov called the name of the place, Face of God, for I have seen God face to face, and my life has been saved. And the sun rose on him as he crossed by face of God, and he was limping on his thigh. For that reason, the children of Israel do not eat the sinew that is on the socket of the thigh until this day, for he had touched the socket of Jacob's thigh at the sinew. I've got the structure of the passage laid out for you, and at the center of it is this changing of the name, which is really where we got to and stopped last time. We saw that this takes place on the other side, on this side, so to speak, of the Jabbok River. Jacob has already crossed the river. There's no idea that somebody's trying to keep him out of the land because he's already come into the land. Nothing indicates that he went back and then was prevented from coming in by himself. So some of the pictures that we have in our mind about this are not entirely correct. He is fighting against somebody who attacks him in the dark of the night. And, of course, night is real dark in the ancient world, unless the moon is out. And Jacob doesn't know who this is. It might be Laban come back. It might be Isaac coming out to fight with him. Most likely Esau. 
And as a matter of fact, we notice that he says, I see God face to face. And then in 33 verse 10, Jacob says to Esau, I have seen your face as one sees the face of God. So there's some kind of a parallel between this wrestler and Esau. But it's not Esau. He might have expected it was, that Esau who'd wrestled with him in the womb nearly a century earlier and now come out to wrestle with him again. But it's Yahweh. Now, Yahweh is the true older brother. And Yahweh has been the big brother who's been wrestling with Jacob all these years, for 97 years, ever since the womb, and he's been wrestling with him through Esau, which is the point. We always say God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. But we can just as easily say God the Father, God the Brother, and God the Counselor. God the Husband, God the Father, God the Husband, and God the Matchmaker. Well, this is a brother-brother section of the Bible. I'll just remind you of how this works, because it is coming back into focus here. Adam rebels against the father. Cain rebels against God the brother by murdering his brother. And the Sethites rebel against the spirit or matchmaker. God says, my spirit will not always strive with man. What's he striving to do? He's striving to have the sons of God marry the daughters of God instead of the daughters of men. But they're going off and committing the sin of intermarriage and rebelling against the spirit. So there's a progression. In the sanctuary, in the garden, we rebel against the Father. Out in the land, we rebel against God the brother. Out in the world context, we rebel against God the spirit. Then Genesis answers these by giving us Abraham... And Abraham's always around altars. He's always building altars. Abraham, his name is Father. He's an image of the true Father. He has to offer up his son to the Father. In fact, twice he has to give his sons away to the Father, trusting the Father. The whole Father sanctuary motifs are there in the Abraham story. In the Jacob story, it's all brothers. It's Cain and Abel over again. It's in the land context. Jacob is developing a land. He's made to leave the land. He has to give up the land, go to a strange land. There he gets a land. Because the land really means your possessions, your animals, all the stuff you have. That's your land. It's not a sanctuary. He's not building altars. He's getting flocks. And the whole struggle here is the brother-brother struggle. And he's dealing with God the brother throughout. Next, we will come to Joseph and Judah. Their stories are parallel. Both of them get involved with women of a foreign nation. Judah wrongly, Joseph rightly. It's in a world context. How do you deal with the daughters of men in the world? How do you deal with the Gentiles? Well, Judah winds up almost corrupting his whole family by getting involved with Canaanite women. But Joseph converts them, and then you can marry him. If you convert the girl, then you can marry her. <laughs> That's the Joseph story. So in Jacob... It's been brother-brother stuff all along, and Laban is like a brother, and Isaac is like a brother, and they keep fighting with him, contesting the way brothers do. But the real brother here has been Esau, who's fought with him all along, and behind Esau is the true older brother. Jesus is the older brother. And if we are older brothers to someone, like Cain, then we have to be like Jesus. Cain says, I am not my brother's guardian. Well, of course he is. The older brother does have responsibilities to the younger ones. Not to control their lives, but to be a brother. Just as Adam was supposed to guard the garden, so the older brother is supposed to guard the younger brothers. 
Cain didn't do that. But Jesus does. Jesus is our older brother. So now we're wrestling with the older brother here. That's who this is, and that's why there's a link between wrestling with God the brother and wrestling with Esau, and that's why seeing the face of God becomes somewhat like seeing the face of Esau because Jacob realizes that, yeah, on this occasion he's wrestling with God face to face, but all those previous years it was God who was wrestling with him through Esau. Now, we've all heard sermons on this before, so I need only allude to the fact that that's how we're supposed to view our enemies. You don't have to be angry and vengeful toward people who do wrong to you because you know that it's actually God who is working through those people. And when you realize that, well, then you realize it was God who brought these bad things upon you. It's God who's wrestling with you. And he's doing it for your good, because God never does anything except with a good intention. Well, I'll give you an example. We bought a house a year ago. The day we moved in, we discovered there was a very serious plumbing problem that has cost us several thousand dollars to fix. The people who sold us this house knew about it. They didn't declare it. And we have now gone, now that we've got it fixed and it stayed fixed, we've written them a letter and said, you need to pay for this. Under the law, you sold us a house with this condition, you didn't declare it, you're responsible. They've written this back saying, buyer beware, too bad. So now we'll go to small claims court. Now, now that caused a certain amount of distress in us to know that we couldn't use our bathroom for about three months while it was being fixed and had to go downstairs in the house that we thought that we were going to move into. But who brought that to pass? Well, God brings it to pass. God throws roadblocks in our way, makes us sick, does things to us, even things that are really horrible for our good. And getting mad at the people who he uses as tools doesn't help him. Yes, I'm going to try to get out of these people money that is owed to us. Jacob doesn't suddenly think Esau is a great guy. He separates from Esau as soon as he can. You still know who the people you can trust are and the people you can't trust. You know who the good people are and who the bad people are. But you recognize you don't allow your life to go into bitterness and anger because you realize that the people who are wrestling with you, whether it's your brother or your wife or your kids or your boss or somebody who sold you a house or whatever, the people who are contesting with you and causing you grief, God is behind those people. And so that's the parallel. It's God the brother he's been wrestling with God has wrestled with Jacob through Esau. Doesn't make Esau righteous, just means you see behind the bad things to God. Of course, this is what the book of Job is about. All kinds of really horrible things happen to Job. And for no reason, Job hasn't done anything wrong. But then Job does do something wrong. He starts to doubt the goodness of God. He starts to think, God does not have good intentions to me. And so at the end of the book, God appears to him and says, Hey, I take care of everything. I take care of horses. I take care of dinosaurs. And I'm taking care of you. You can trust me because I'm good to everything. And that's when Job says, Okay, this was terrible to go through, but I trust you. Well, that's Jacob. Something very similar in Jacob's life here. He's been through a really lot of bad experiences, but... He is now coming face to face with the fact that it's God who took him through those bad experiences for the purpose of making him mature. And we just as soon not be mature, I think. <laughs> I had a friend who had heart surgery years ago. After he got out, 
the doctor came to see him in the hospital the next day and he said, you didn't tell me it was going to hurt like this. And the doctor said, if I told people how much it was going to hurt, nobody would ever have this operation. So, if forewarned is forearmed when the doctor says, well, it'll hurt some. It's probably going to hurt a whole lot more, but they just don't want you to know because they know you need the operation and <laughs> forgiveness is easier to get than permission when it comes to things like this. Well, they do it for your good. And that's what's happened here. Well, those are things that we all know, but here they are. This is one of the important passages of the Bible that teaches us this. And that's what Jacob is coming face to face with here. Yeah, this life has been real hard, but it's been God who's been throwing all these roadblocks in my way and there for a reason, and I can trust him. Well, when did this happen? Oh, toward the latter part of the night. Jacob has spent the night bringing stuff across the river, and he's left alone, so he didn't wrestle all night long. Again, now I kind of have these things in my mind, and I assume that at least some of you do, that Jacob wrestled on the far side of the river. God was trying to prevent him from coming in, or that they wrestled all night long. Well, neither one of those things are true. He'd already crossed the river, and it wasn't all night long. It was just the last part of the night. Of course, it has to happen at night so that Jacob doesn't know who this is. If he could see that this was somebody he'd never met before and see some of the glory, he wouldn't have fought. God wants him to fight. Another reason it happens at night is that we're at another Passover anticipation situation here where a transition is going to happen during the night. A name's going to be changed. Another reason it happens in the night is that night comes before day in the Bible. Evening and then morning, sorrow and then triumph, suffering and then resurrection. Nighttime is the time that you go through hard times and daytime is when you experience the happiness of the kingdom. And so even there, the nighttime is an appropriate time for this to take place. It summarizes 97 years of being in the dark and wrestling with somebody. You know, if you're wrestling with your twin in the womb, it's dark in there. So it's always been dark. He gets a wound in the thigh. He gets a wound on the inside of the thigh. The socket of his thigh uh, refers to the curved inside place here. Not on the outside, on the inside right next to the genitals. And that's important because this links very closely to circumcision. And we'll talk about it later on. But this is kind of an extension of circumcision. Circumcision means that you're set apart to be God's priests who will be raised up to minister for him and for the benefit of everybody else. Well, Jacob is somebody who is being taken to an advanced form of that. He is already set apart to minister to God and to minister to the people on God's behalf, and that's being extended into a more mature and advanced form, and so the wound of circumcision is brought again in another way at this point. So we'll discuss that, and also because it's on the leg and it leaves him limping, this looks back to the foot wound of the Messiah in Genesis 3, and that's all tied to circumcision. This is all one complex of things, and we'll take it up, and we've discussed it before, but we can take it up again to reinforce it in our minds. Sunrise. 
Well, the sun's starting to come up, and Jacob now sees that this is not anybody he's ever met before, or at least that he can recall. When God appeared to him at Bethel, God was way up on top of this ladder to heaven. Maybe he recognizes that this is the angel of Jehovah. Maybe not. But it's not a man. It's not a mere man. It just seemed like a man to start with. Because God has been approaching him through men. Esau is a man, and you've been wrestling with a man, but behind that man was the angel of Jehovah. Now Jacob says, bless me. And as I say here, Jacob's request for a blessing carries forward his desire for Isaac's blessing. Now this is the real blessing. Isaac could give the father's blessing, but Isaac isn't God. When you meet God face to face, you say, well... It's been great to have the blessing that was mediated through the fathers, but how about a real blessing directly from you? And there's also this too. I don't have this in the notes, but the blessing that Isaac gives is the father's blessing. What Jacob is asking for and what is being added in is the brother's blessing. Let me add on to this chart here. The sign that you are a sanctuary priest and that you have the Father of the Blessing, what is the sign of that? We just talked about it. Circumcision. The sign that you're going to function in the land as a king, and that you have the Brother's Blessing, that's going to be this thigh wound, the limp. Now, where is this headed? I mean, this is kind of off the top of my head, except that after 25 years of studying biblical theology, I think that we can do this without any difficulty. If God's ultimate goal is for us to be full witnesses in the world and have the Spirit, and we start with circumcision, which is painful for a couple of days, then we get this thigh wound that means that we can't even walk very well and really cripples us. What is going to happen here that is the ultimate form of this to make us ready for witnesses in the world and make the Spirit come? Yeah, death. The cross is a good way of putting it, see? We're moving here. So, when we get to Joseph, Joseph gets thrown into a pit and comes out again. Joseph gets thrown down into a prison and comes out again. So the death and resurrection wounds become... We can't actually kill Joseph and bring him to life again. <laughs> we can't do this literally until we get to Jesus, actually. We can do it a little bit beforehand. But with Joseph, it's going to be symbolic. But Jesus says the cross is a circumcision. So we're moving from circumcision to the limp to the full death and resurrection that this sees. And it's progressive. This is the sin against the Spirit resulted in the flood where everybody was actually killed. Cain wasn't killed. He was just sent out to wander limping in the world. But the Sethites, they were all killed for their sin. And similarly, we make the same progression here. A small judgment, a bigger judgment, or a small symbolic passage from death to life, circumcision. A much bigger symbolic passage from an old way to a new way here with the foot wound, the limp, thigh wound, and then the ultimate passage through death and resurrection that results in the entire world. After that happens with Jesus, that the Spirit comes and the Gospel goes to the whole world. So those are patterns. These things help me to understand the structure of the Bible and the book. They're there, and I hope they're helpful to you. At any rate, we can come back to all that as we 
get into it thematically, I want to point to it here that there's another blessing here. And I think this blessing is the brother's blessing. Got the father's blessing. Now we want the blessing that comes from God the brother. What happens when we meet Esau tomorrow morning? Esau suddenly is friendly. Maybe it's because he's received all these gifts. Whether he received the gifts or not, something has happened in Esau. Probably right now, if he came out with 400 men, it might have been a friendly escort through the troubled land of Seir. More likely, an opposing army. But when you get the blessing of the brother, your brother is reconciled to you. You get the blessing of the father, you're reconciled to your fathers. You get the blessing of the brother, God the brother, and now the brother is at peace with you. So that seems to be part of it too. We've had this brother-brother strife. Now the brother-brother strife is going to stop. There isn't going to be any more brother-brother strife in this story. No, it's going to be fathers and sons and really witness in the world. Murdering these Shechemites, that's bad witness in the world. The story's going to shift to how we deal with the Gentiles and how we witness in the world. And it's not going to start out very well when the sons of Jacob murder these Shechemites. We'll be moving into this third area here. But here we are, getting this limp, getting things settled with God the brother, which means we'll get settled with other brothers. And that's good. God says, you're now ready. Not because you're a sinner that I'm fighting with you, but to make you strong and wise, and you're now ready. I'll give you peace with Esau. I don't need to wrestle with you anymore. Since God says, I don't need to wrestle with you anymore, there's no need for me to keep Esau mad at you anymore. I used Isaac to fight with you. I used Laban to fight with you. I used Esau to fight with you. Now the fight's over, so I'll just send some peace into Esau's heart, Laban's heart, Isaac's heart. There's no need for these people to fight with you anymore because I'm not going to fight with you anymore. The fight's over. Well, then we come to this changing of the name. I will not let you go unless you bless me. And so God says, the angel says, what's your name? And he says, replacement. And he says, your name will not be replacement. It will be God Wrestler. This is about where we were last night. Change of name does not mean a change from bad man to good man, from sneaky to God wrestler. Rather, Jacob was Isaac's replacement. Isaac was a priest in the sacrifice. He failed as a priest because he failed to obey, as a priest has to do. A priest is supposed to obey exactly what he's told. Jacob has obeyed, and now he has moved to kingly status. He passes that kingly status to his sons, and he himself becomes a prophet. We've talked about this two weeks ago, but we are going to come back to that. And so I'll just mention it here since it's in the notes. Jacob doesn't need to be a replacement anymore because he's done what needed to be done. Abraham, God had certain things he wanted to accomplish there, and they were accomplished. And then we come to Isaac. And Isaac, God had certain things he wanted to accomplish, and Isaac didn't do it. And so, Jacob replaces him, and now those things have been accomplished. And so, Jacob's name can be changed to Israel. And something new can start. But the new thing that's going to start is not a series of changes to Jacob. Essentially, Jacob isn't going to change anymore. God is not going to put Jacob or Israel through any more changes 
Instead, he's going to start working on the sons. That's why the name Israel refers to the nation as well as to the man himself. Jacob is going to have many more years of experience, but they're not designed to transform him into a new kind of person. He's been transformed into a new kind of person. That's what's happening here. That new person now God wants to work on, and he's working on this as a community with the sons. And he actually works through Jacob to deal with the sons. Jacob gives those sons the right to conduct negotiations in Shechem. When they do wrong, God works through Jacob to judge those sons. God is going to work through Jacob to deal with the sons, just as God worked through Esau to deal with Jacob. That's a change in theme, and we'll be seeing that as we go. Looking at the changes and transformations that take place. Well, we ended last time by looking at this name, God Wrestler Israel. It has three overlapping meanings. It means that God wrestles with him because God wrestles with us. Israel is the people with whom God wrestles to save and mature them into his likeness. It also means God wrestler. Israel is the people who wrestle with God to receive the blessing. That's part of what's happening here. Jacob says, I'm going to let you go unless you bless me. So Jacob wrestles with God and holds on to him until he blesses me. New Testament, Jesus says, the importunate widow comes and says, avenge me of my adversary. And she keeps coming and bugging the judge until he does it. She's an Israelite. She wrestles until the blessing comes. And then the third meaning of the term, because it's so compact, it can easily mean all these things, and it does. God's wrestler, one who wrestles as God's champion. David goes out as the champion of Israel to fight Goliath, and we are all God's champions who wrestle on his behalf. If you saw the movie The Apostle, remember that's what Robert Duvall says when he evangelizes a couple in the car wreck. He says, you'll be his champions. Well, it's the right way to put it. That's not an endorsement of every aspect of that movie, but it was a memorable phrase. And it's one that relates here. Jacob, it says, has prevailed with man and also with God. There's no implication here that his wrestling with men has been wrong. You know, if somebody tries to cheat you or do you wrong and you have to wrestle with them, that doesn't make you wrong. It's not wrong to have to wrestle with men if you do it the right way. It hasn't been wrong with him to wrestle with God in prayer. That's what he's done the night before was to come to God and wrestle with him in prayer. There's no indication that this has been wrong. God doesn't say, you've been wrestling with men and with me and that's been a great sin. No, God wants us to wrestle with him. That's why the Psalms are full of this type of language. The implication is that all along he's been wrestling with God also. Victory doesn't mean that God has been defeated, but rather that God is pleased with the maturity of his son. God says there's no need for us to fight anymore. You've gotten to the point where I wanted to bring you. So I'm going to stop fighting with you. Esau's going to stop fighting with you. All these problems that you've had in the past are going to go away. (laughs) There are going to be some new problems, but all the old problems are going to go away. The brothers who wrestled with you in the past... That's over with. You won't be wrestling with any more brothers because you've gotten to the point where I wanted to bring you. Then we move to verse 29. Jacob asked and says, Pray tell me your name. But he said, This person says, Why do you ask after my name? And he gave him the blessing there. Well, we know that the lesser is blessed by the greater, that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham because Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Obviously, God is greater than we are. This is someone greater than Jacob. And 
it's of course God Himself, the angel of God, God the Brother. God won't give Him a name. And this again is one of those things that's an important theological nexus in the Bible. It comes up here and there, tells us something that's absolutely indispensable to our understanding. That is that God is the namer and He's not the one who is named. Because when you have somebody's name, you have control over it. I could put you in a foul mood and maybe even make you angry if I insulted your name. I have that kind of control over you because I know your name. If I started to abuse your name, said some choice things about your mother and your father and your family and all the things connected with your name and made fun of your name, belittled it, instead of calling Mr. Greek Bob, I called him Bobby, not in a nice way, but in an ugly way and generally ridiculed him. Well, even if you said, I'm not going to let this get to me, the fact is you're having to say, I'm not going to let this get to me because it is trying to get to you. When somebody knows your name, they have a certain amount of power over you. That's one way in which they do. Another way is, you're in a conversation with somebody in a crowded room and you hear somebody say your name, you hear it. Somebody says, you know that Harold Thomas, he's a... And you said, what? I hear my name? You do. You hear it. The name is kind of a direct link into your heart. And when you give somebody your name, you give them a certain amount of power. Joyce, you going to make a comment? Yeah. If the Pope puts the crown on your head, then he's your superior. That's why Charlemagne crowned himself. Separation of church and state. That's what Charlemagne believed. (laughs) I mean, you can soften that up to say that the Pope crowns to say, in spiritual matters I have authority, which would be true enough. I mean, the king is supposed to listen to the church as regards some things, but it was always a little bit more than that. Did you want to make a comment on that? Yeah, the Charlemagne. Yeah, they had a very difficult time kind of keeping church and state side by side in the Middle Ages. <laughs> if you were a Velf or a Gelf, you wanted... Which was it? State over the church, and if you're a Ghibelline, you wanted the church over the state. I can never keep them straight. Went on for about 500 years. Well, at any rate, this business of name and control is important. You can kind of steer somebody with their name. We don't think about that because we don't really face the problem a whole lot. We are in a society that has been influenced by Christianity to the point where we're basically courteous with one another. But... In former times, one of the reasons that people almost always addressed each other as Mr. and Mrs. and didn't use first names is because the first name was something that you kind of reserved for only a few people. I know over here in the school, you all are careful to say Mr. Greet, Mr. and not use first names very much. Well, there was a reason for that, and that is that a first name or a familiar name has a lot more control and power And you reserve that for the people that you are comfortable with, that you feel like you can give that kind of power to. And you keep those more formal names in the back. Well, that gives you something. You see that there are more formal names and there are more intimate names. And in the Bible, God gives parts of his name and thus allows us some control over him by his grace. He wouldn't have to give us anything, but he does. He gives them the name Yahweh and says this is the covenant name. And if you're in trouble, call on the name Yahweh. Praise the name Yahweh. 
call on Yahweh's name, and He will hear. Because I have given you at least this much of a name. It's not everything, but it's something, and I'll hear. Because even in a crowded room, you hear your own name if somebody says it out loud. And if you blaspheme that name, if you ridicule it, I'll be angry. The same way you'd be angry if I made fun of your name. Let's say you had a name that people could make fun of. When I was in summer camp in the military, one of the officers was named Major Fluck. F-L-U-C-K. I could not believe that man hadn't changed his name, being in the military. And he was always in a bad mood. And I thought, well, it's easy to know why this guy's got a chip on his shoulder. If he's in the military and his name is Major Fluck, you know what he's had to put up with. I think I would have come up with another name. Or gone back to what that's on. That's probably a shortened form of Flickingham or something German. And somebody shortened it up back in the days when people's language was more courteous, and now he's stuck with that name. But you wouldn't want that, somebody ridiculing your name. So God says, if you ridicule my name, take my name in vain, abuse it, I'll kill you. But if you use my name properly, then I'll hear you. And God gives us that much control. He takes the risk. And he says, I'm going to get down in here and I'll deal with you. The fullness of his name, however, he will not and indeed cannot give us because we can never control him absolutely. Even if God could give us his complete name, he wouldn't. But that's not even possible for being creatures. We could never have the fullness of his name. He is rather the namer. He does control us absolutely and he can give us the complete and total name. That's why in the book of Revelation, as we saw There's a secret name that God gives us that no one knows but us. And that at the day of judgment, or the the implication is that when He comes, He writes your name in the New Jerusalem, there's a new name that no one knows but He who receives it. God knows us so perfectly that He can give us exactly the right name. Because He's infinite, He's the Creator, and He controls us. And for exactly the same reason, we can't know His absolutely complete name. F, the name of God is progressively given in history until we come to Jesus, and now we pray in Jesus' name. Jesus tells us more about God than God had ever shown before, and God takes more of a risk and gives us more of himself when he gives us Jesus than he'd ever given before. Earlier, there was some revelation, but not much. Remember in Exodus 32, you probably remember this, I probably don't need to go into it, Exodus 34, Moses says, show me your glory. God says, I'll let my goodness pass in front of your face and I will call out the name of Yahweh. He says, you cannot see my face. And he hides him in the rock. And then God passed before his face, Exodus 34, verse 6, and called out Yahweh, Yahweh God, showing mercy, showing favor, long-suffering and anger, abundant in loyalty and faithfulness, keeping loyalty to the thousandth generation, bearing iniquity, rebellion, and sin, yet not clearing, clearing the guilty, calling to account iniquity of the fathers upon the sons and upon the sons' sons to the third and fourth generation. Now, that's called the backside of God's name because God says, I'll show you my backside, and he goes by and he gives this name. It's a long description. It's one that you can count on. Pray in Yahweh's name means praying, counting on these things are true. That if you're faithful, he'll bless you to the thousandth generation. If you're not 
judgment will come down to the third and fourth. It's the kind of God He is. He tells us that much. Later on in the Bible, when Manoah, when the angel of the Lord appears to Manoah and the mother of Samson, in Judges 13, real quickly here, they want to know his name. Manoah said to the angel of Yahweh, What is your name that we may honor you? And the angel of Yahweh said, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful, full of wonders? Then it says, Manoah took the kid with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to Yahweh, and the angel performed wonders while Manoah and his wife looked at it. So God says, I'm not going to give you my name, it's full of wonders, but I will do a wonder, and you can observe that wonder, and you can know something but you're not going to know a whole lot. But as time goes along, God reveals more and more of Himself as the Bible gets bigger and bigger. And we get to Jesus, and Jesus' life tells us the most about God that we can possibly know. I think that would be a way to put it. You think there's got to be more about God known? Everything that you can really know about God is in the Bible. It's just that we don't understand it all. We haven't gotten it all out yet. Maybe we never will. There will always be more to learn about the Bible. But Jesus' life tells us the most that we can know. Jesus' promises give us the most control over God that we as creatures can possibly possess. If you start looking at the promises Jesus gives, ask for the Spirit. I promise that if you ask for the Spirit, I'll give them to you. That's an amazing promise. God says, I will give you myself if you ask in Jesus' name. God has given more about himself, revealed his name more, and given more control to us. It's not control to manipulate God, but God puts himself within our grasp and says, I promise I will respond if you pray in Jesus' name. Now, just need to make the point, the use of Jesus' name is viewed magically by some charismatics as if we have absolute power over God. And you run into people say, I now know about the name. I know about Jesus' name. And I can ask God to dump $50,000 in my lap if I invoke the name. Well, of course, that's not true. There's no magic control over God by saying Jesus' name. The true use of Jesus' name is to plead His promises with the Father. It involves wrestling. God doesn't say you can just name it and claim it. He says you have to wrestle. But if you wrestle in Jesus' name, in terms of what He says He'll do, He'll do them. We have the right to plead what He promises. Now, that's a long way of saying at this stage in redemptive history, God is not giving anywhere near as much of His name as He's now given to us. But He gives some because this name is Yahweh and Jacob now knows more about God than he knew before. God wrestles with you through other people and He does it for your good. Now, So much for a little sermonette on that subject. God says, why do you ask my name? And God names him. God named him, but he doesn't get to name God. God does the same with Moses. Moses says, tell me your name. The people will want to know your name when I go back to them. And he says, I'm Yahweh, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. And as for you, Moses, you're going to do this, that, and the other. He proceeds to tell Moses what Moses is going to do. Describing Moses. Well, verse 30. Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. And the next verse says, The sun rose on him as he crossed by Penuel. 
you'll see them both. They're both variants of the same phrase. The difference is a vowel, and it means the same thing. It means face of God. He says, I saw the face of God. In some sense. I have seen God face to face. Interesting that Paul in 2 Corinthians says that right now we see in a mirror darkly, but eventually face to face. The implication would seem to be that in the fullest sense, our whole life is a time of wrestling with God, and when we die, we see Him face to face, we are reaching the equivalent of this point, that God has finished the wrestling phase of our life, and we enter into the promised land and into the peace of the covenant. And that's what Jacob comes. He comes into the promised land and he enters into the peace of the covenant for a number of years. Immediately the next story here is going to be about the rape of Dinah. But see, that's about 10, 12 years in the future. There is a period of peace implied here that he is going to enter into now. Well, verse 31, Jacob called the name of the place face of God, for I have seen God face to face. My life has been saved. Verse 31, the sun rose on him as he crossed by Penuel. Sunrise. This business of the sun coming up as you come into the promised land, it recurs in Judges 5. It comes up a bunch of time in Judges. But when Deborah prays, Let all your enemies perish, O Lord. Let those who love him be like the rising of the sun and its might. refers back to Jacob. Jacob is the mighty one. He wrestles with God, the mighty one, El. El means mighty one. Elohim means God, but El means powerful one. Face of God, Penny El, face of the mighty one. Jacob is mighty enough to wrestle with God. So the sun coming up is a sign of Jacob's strength. But you see, paradoxically, his strength consists of his limp. Our strength consists of humility. This image associates the godlike power of the sun with the seeming weakness of the limping man. And not just the power of the sun, but what in Genesis 1, what does it say the sun, moon, and stars were set up to do? What do they represent? They are rulers and governors. The greater light for ruling the day, the smaller light for ruling the night. He set them in the firmament to rule the day and night. So, the shining forth of light and ruling are parallel, and Jacob is now like the sun. He comes in as a ruler. Not anymore a a servant priest, but now a ruler. But one who limps, one who's weak. The limp is a sign of true power, and true power lies in humility and sacrifice. I'm going to stop there. Because the next phrase... Therefore, the sons of Israel don't eat the sinew that's on the socket of the thigh because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh at the sinew is a little bit complicated. If we were ancient people, this would be easy. But being as how we're modern people, it's a bit curious as to why they wouldn't eat the part of the body on an animal that's parallel to the place where the forefather had been hit. So we want to unpack that a bit, and that'll take some time. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. 
You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.